welcome to Geeks with Shields, your home for all things good and nerdy in this, the darkest timeline. I'm Lord Commander Ulrich, and with me as always is... His shield brother, Axel Wright. How are you doing today, Axel? I uh, You know, I'm better now that I'm in the chat talking with you. Like, I, I've had a really angry day, and I was really rushed and had a lot going on, but now get home, sit down, start recording feel better so yeah, i've had an angry week which i think that's why we chose i think this topic works so well because we're going to talk about video games the good the bad and the ugly <laughs> and we're going to make some enemies today i really truly think we're going to piss a lot of people off so well, some people at least and if yeah, we don't because it we're going to talk about dlc free lc microtransactions as well as a little bit you know some games we like we want to see more of and how we think we can make these things work. So let's start firstly with DLC and microtransactions. Let's get our thoughts out there. Uh, let's start with your opinion, man. Okay, well, you said DLC first, and I suppose DLC is like the oldest form of micro... Well, it's not a microtransaction, it's a straight-up transaction. And uh, it's funny because, you know, I was grew up in a time... I mean, I... I was born after the the first golden age of video games, I guess, which would be the 80s, right? When, you know, Nintendo was first getting big and shit like that. So uh, I would say I, I grew up in, I, I guess you could call it the Silver Age. And I got to watch, you know, games. I mean, my first video game ever was still Super Mario Brothers on a Nintendo. So I got to go from that to what we have now. So I got to watch the you know, the change while while I grew up with it, which I think is pretty neat. So when DLC started becoming, like, a thing, um, which, what would you say, like, that's Generation that's... 6 or 7? It's around PlayStation 3? and I don't know, because how do we count expansion packs? Because those were the first real big... Okay, let's... DLCs. No, I totally agree, because, like, I mean, the first expansion pack I ever owned, then, would be uh, Lord of Destruction for Diablo 2. And Mine was uh, Brood War for StarCraft. So both Blizzard games <laughs> yeah. on a good start here. Uh, and the thing I, that I think about expansion packs is that we're a good thing, right? Like, uh, in general, right, you have a, a game that you want more of, and then you pay usually, in my experience at the time, it was like half the price of the game for uh, extra, essentially, campaign, right? Like, that's what... Um, some maps, some gameplay, some stuff they've been working on, a few units here and there. And it was mostly PC-related, because I don't think you could really do that for, you know, the consoles just yet. Not, like I said, I don't think until PlayStation 3. There might have been some for PlayStation 2 and Xbox, especially Xbox, but I think it was a very rarity until the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360 era. Yeah. So, uh, but anyway, my, my point is that, like, like with Diablo, right, added a whole new act and two new playable classes, one of which was my class for the game. And it was like, I mean, yes, I bought the battle chest, so technically I, I bought it with the expansion pack. But, uh, you know, comparatively buying just Diablo 2 on its own and then the expansion pack, it was like ha ha half the price. And yeah, that might seem kind of extreme, half the price for maybe a fifth of the content. But, you know, it was additional content, and I, I think that was actually just fine at the time. So DLC is one of those things where, like, if you're going to... And, and to use a modern example, right? If you're going to give me DLC that's like a paid expansion, essentially, then I expect, uh, you know, money's worth. I think that's fair as a consumer in a free enterprise society. So, like, Bethesda tends to do very well, even now, with a few exceptions, like, yeah, the Oblivion horse armor, we, that's, oh, that's fucking terrible. Yeah. But, but on the other hand, like, you know, Skyrim's, uh, both of its primary expansions, uh, the the Hearthfire one was, was good, but 
eh. But the other two... I like Hearthfire, but it keeps me from going back and playing Skyrim because I lost my save data on my house, and I'm not willing to go through that grind again. <laughs> but you get my point that both the other yeah. ones, uh, Dawnguard and Dragonborn, not only do they add, like, a good chunk of like time okay if you're a speed runner or even a high level gamer it's not that long but like your average gamer both those expansions give you like a, a good you know five six hours of play style plus editing a few you know bugs and pro i mean the fact that dawn guard gave me a werewolf skill tree was already yeah. like worth the price of admission at that point so so it still exists right so dlc can be done well the point is to uh make it worth the money as a side note, there's a, a big stigma against day one DLC, and I will say that day one DLC isn't inherently bad because what actually happens in the gaming industry a lot of times is that a, uh, a team will complete the game, and then because of publishers and crap like that, it can't actually get released for upwards of like four weeks, four to eight weeks, and so the team can either move on to a different game or they could start working on DLC for it. So it's not literally a matter of, it's not always anyway, a matter of, hey, let's just chop this piece off of the game and then sell it to you on day one. It could literally be, hey, we completed the game, and while it's getting published, we also completed this DLC. Yeah, now, and I have thoughts, and we'll circle back to that. Yeah. Now, there is no defensing shit like on-disc DLC, which I know, uh, what was it, Street oh. Fighter was guilty of a few years back. I haven't heard a big yeah. example of it in a few years, but like that shit, no excuse. Uh, no, I also personally hate the season pass in general because essentially, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm paying you for the promise of something, which means that that's all you give me is an IOU, and uh, I like to. So I only buy a season pass if it already has enough in it existent to make it worth it. For instance, I bought the season pass for uh, Borderlands Two. I think no, not. Not Borderlands 2. I bought the game of the year edition of Borderlands 2. I bought the season pass for Fallout 4 after the, the main expansion came out. Like, maybe it wasn't worth the full price of it, but it's like, okay, at this point, there's already uh, a decent chunk-sized DLC out, and I could either buy that directly or I could buy the season pass at this point. So I did it at that point. Yeah, and you knew it was from a game that you liked and a company that you trusted that it had a history of good DLC in the past, right? Yeah, but in general, this this culture of buy things for the promise of getting them down the line, it seems really scummy to me in general. Like, I, I hate pre-order culture. There was a time when pre-ordering meant something, right? Because there's only a certain going to be a certain number of copies at your local store. Essentially, like I remember pre-ordering uh, Pokemon like Ruby and Sapphire and Pokemon black and white i had those like pre-ordered um yeah i kind of miss those days there was kind of an excitement to it but the other time i don't miss the inconvenience of not being able to get a game i want for three months yeah but that was like i said that was the point of pre-ordering but now we live in a culture where the video game industry is so for lack of a better term bloated and uh and lack of physical copies is not a problem anymore because a vast yeah. majority of game sales are digital now i feel like pre-ordering is just bullshit and all of the extra like things they throw in like oh you get this little statue or uh you know get buy this gold or collector's edition and you'll get this like you'll get the game three days early whoopty fucking do or you'll get you know just like that shit actually irritates me <laughs> yeah and it's funny you mention that because that brings up what I thought was a really dumb controversy, 
least for mine. As we've talked about, I am a huge fan of the Total War games and mm-hmm. even a bigger fan of the new Total War Warhammer games. And when the first one came out, one of the big things they did was if you pre-ordered, you were going to get the Warriors of Chaos DLC free with your purchase. Right. And people immediately lost their shit. Because as we've discussed, Chaos is a big player both in 40k and how how early was this uh, announced like when it was announced what was the date and when was the how long from then was it going to be released i think we were still like a year out maybe six months okay yeah that's bullshit then because that's saying before we even made the game we already have planned this chunk of it as dlc and we're already going to charge you separate for it unless you pre-order essentially holding part of the game hostage and I get that, but the main reason everyone was so upset and freaked out was when the previous game, Rome 2, launched, mm-hmm. it was a buggy, unplayable mess at first. Mm, a Warner Brothers, like, I get it. <laughs> yeah, but considering that the team put out nearly weekly updates and patches and free LCs to, you know, make the game better and apologize and do all these things to, you know, fix the game, I was willing, like, okay... Okay, so so not Warner Brothers, like... <laughs> no, they busted their asses and rebuilt that game from the ground up to get it back to playable. And I wasn't afraid that this one was going to be the same thing. Like, you only make that mistake once as a major company. Mm. I mean, if you want to stay in business. And I didn't think... But everyone was afraid that, you know, oh, they only want us to pre-order this main faction because this game's going to be a buggy, unplayable mess. Can I... And... Okay, if I start getting too uh, charged here, or I cross a line, just tell me, because this is kind of iffy water here. But I want to preface everything else I'm about to say by saying that, uh, so we live in a free enterprise society, not actually a capitalist society by most definitions, but sure, definitions can change, but free enterprise. So the idea that these game companies exist to make money, yes, totally fine. Uh, the point of these companies is to make money that being said like any enterprise there should be a a trust between consumer and producer essentially like if i go to you know like a local baker right then i i know that he's trying to make money and i want bread and so i'm hoping for like a fair all right you're gonna get a a profit and i'm gonna get my bread right so there's a certain kind of like trust there the problem with a lot of what we're talking about is that when these practices because like these game companies trying to make money is not inherently a bad thing but when the practices essentially breach what i consider to be uh, a level of trust between consumer and producer in other words they aren't trying to just make money they're trying to make all of your money all of it and to milk you as much as possible that that is what makes the things that we say are bad bad when it feels like they are uh, taking advantage of their consumer base as opposed to transacting with their consumer base. Does that make sense? And I'm back to my story. The reason I wasn't so upset was, one, I had faith in this company and this game. And two, while this, you know, the the Chaos Warriors were a race they were already completed, I felt like there was enough of the base game that this was a cherry on top. Oh, okay. So you were fine? with it essentially yeah i honestly wasn't upset now interestingly enough when the second one came out they dropped that entirely 
and they gave you a 10% discount if you pre-ordered, which has gone over a lot better. And I guess I, guess I have mixed feelings. makes sense. So. Yeah, I agree with that one more. But if, and I, I don't typically get upset with pre-order DLCs and whatnot so much because on the one hand, I know it's a gimmick to get me to buy the game early, but on the other hand, I see it as this is a reward for having faith in the game beforehand. And with Steam's return policy, if the game comes out and it is garbage, I hit return, I get all of that back. Okay, sure, but we're talking and about... And I got this DLC at a technically a discounted price. I guess, like, like I said, though, for me, that the big problem there is a matter of this isn't like us giving you something extra as the game, it's we have taken part of the game that we've already made and we're chopping it off and selling it to you separately. As opposed to, we've made the game, we've sold it, and now we've made some extra stuff. It's like a difference between uh, adding more after the fact and preemptively chopping up to, to sell more. And that's, I think, yeah. where that, that feels like a breach of trust, right? Well, it's really, I think, a tricky topic. I mean, the worst example of that, and I don't even remember if this went through. I just remember when the story was first breaking, was um, Hitman. They were going to take uh, a Hitman game that they had already made and then chop it up into seven pieces and sell it in episodes, which completely is against the entire idea of episodic gaming. Which yeah. Is, so, like, that's that's kind of the same thing. Sure, if you trust the company and the company has a good uh, interaction with their base – I totally understand that. That's why I was a big fan of like Bioware because I always felt like Bioware, in uh, defiance of their EA overlords, was very good at um, communication with their uh, their their base. But that doesn't mean that uh, some of the you know pre-order like practices of Mass Effect Three didn't still piss me off. <laughs> so, yeah. so let's bring it back to original point DLC. I think for me, I don't. I'm not of the mind that DLC is inherently bad. I don't think anything I, we're talking about is inherently bad. I don't think there's no. such thing as an inherently bad tool, just how you apply it. Yeah, and I, for the most part, enjoy DLC because the Total War games that I play have gotten pretty good at you know putting out regular DLC that I think is fairly priced that adds a new something to the game, a new faction, a new mechanic, a new something. And ironically, the way that DLC is treated in the historical community versus the Warhammer community is totally different. Whenever a new uh, DLC comes out for the historical community, people typically get pissed and bitch and moan and don't like it. And I think part of that is because it's a lot simpler for them to do because it's a lot of it's just a reskin or a repacking of an already existing, you know, group. They have assets they have in the game, mm -hmm. but it's eight bucks and I'm not missing out on that much if I don't have it. Well, here's the Warhammer ones. It, they have to build it from the ground up. They have to build new models. They have to build it's a whole new thing they have to build assets essentially mm -hmm. and it's typically a bit more expensive people are generally excited for that new dlc because they want to play that new race with that new thing and to me they, they do good dlc it adds something to the game but, but if you don't have it it doesn't necessarily affect the game for me that's my whole take on dlc sure but it's funny because i think when i look back on a lot of the games that have good dlc in my opinion not only is it good it tends to be my favorite thing in whatever game it is. So we take something like, uh, you know, like Skyrim and the Dawn Guard is my favorite part of that game. Uh, you take something. Let's. I'll move away from Bethesda for a moment. Uh, Dark Souls. 
like Dark Souls 1 and 3 with 1, the Artorias of the Abyss DLC is my favorite part of the game. And with 3, the Ring City is like universally agreed upon to be just absolutely amazing. So, but I think part of that, oh, and my original example in Diablo 2, I play Druid. Druid is my thing. And that was a DLC character. And here's why I think it's important to um, for DLC to take place post-launch with the exception of what i talked about with the oh we completed the game and now in the four weeks of publishing we make a dlc but generally speaking i think when dlc is done really well in just regards to quality like put aside all the pre-order and all that shit aside but in regards to quality when it comes post game then they can look at what they've created and especially if it's post-launch they can look at how the community reacts and then figure out what is beneficial to add what the community would want i think that's why you get things like a werewolf perk tree in the first major dlc for skyrim because like they hid that werewolf shit like they tried to say that there weren't werewolves in skyrim and then came out oh and there's werewolves and i was like yeah werewolves but they suck at higher levels and so they're like okay this is what the community thinks so we'll make sure to make that part of the next dlc even though it's all based around vampires and literally has nothing to do with werewolves so they can sneak in like this is more than just a patch that's new you know, material. And so I think that, Mm -hmm. uh, so the DLC done right work operates like that, where they can take a look at what they've already created and what would be the most beneficial to add. Yeah. So I think we've both talked about games that did DLC right for us. Do you have an example, like your go-to example outside of the horse armor of bad DLC? I mean, horse armor is basically, (laughs) the epitome of bad. Mm, the epitome of bad. I mean, the horse armor is I've definitely the epitome of bad. So I've got a good. I've got my own per- good example that I. Uh, well, then let's hear your yours first. Give me some time to think about mine. Uh, not to beat a dead horse, but again, going back to the Total War series because they've kind of gotten into this DLC market for a while. One of my favorite games they put out was Empire, which was Total War set during the Napoleonic era, uh-huh. and it was a fun game, but. It's also fairly controversial because it had a buggy launch and a lot of the units feel the same, have the same stats, look the same. So they sold you a ton of regiment reskins, Mm -hmm. which were just, they took existing models and put a new skin on it and you got a handful of them and they were $8.99 a pop. Mm -hmm. And it felt deliberately done because you already like the British soldier, the French soldier, the uh, Ottoman soldier all looked identical unless you bought these little skin packs mm. for the same price that they are now. They would later on go to sell full factions, and that always bugged me. And I refused to buy them until they were like seventy five percent on sale on Steam. Yeah, that's definitely a, a thing too. Is like I'm willing to pay for shit that other people might think is superfluous, but the pay it has to be worth it, right? Like gauge your prices properly <laughs> yeah when you're just and three and the, i make exception dlc isn't always you know we as gamers have kind of gotten a sense of entitlement of ourselves we expect everything to be given to us and as gaming's gotten more complex it's a lot harder to add things in it is not hard to reskin something you already have with the exact same animations Okay, in in all fairness, neither one of us are game designers, so the, no, but the extent they're... to which we could talk about how difficult doing something like this. I mean, I'm a software and hardware engineer, and so I know uh, to a certain degree the kind of effort that goes into that. But very, but still, there's there definitely is a certain like 
expectation. There's a difference between creating new units, new animations, new stats versus taking something that's existing and changing the pixel color is what I'm saying. Yeah, yep. tell that to uh, the, what, thousands of essentially Minecraft clones on uh, Steam. <laughs> yeah, that I think is the prime example. So that to me is the perfect example. Again, I've done, you know, both ends of the spectrum in the same series, and I think that they have learned... I can they... do that too. I, I just realized. Sorry, go ahead. No, that's my thoughts. It's like, I have shown you the how this company has, you know, figured out how to make DLC work, you know, from doing it terribly in the beginning to I think they've got a good system now to the fans actually eagerly await the next announcement announced DLC. Mm. So the first thing I thought of when you said an example of doing DLC poorly, and I think this is the best example for me, uh, not necessarily poorly, but of like, well, maybe, uh, anyway, would be uh, Star Wars Battlefront. But only in that case because they essentially cordoned off about 50% of the game uh, behind a something like $60 paywall. I mean, okay, yes, it's other mini paywalls. Like, basically, you pay 60 bucks to get the base game, and it's very obviously an incomplete game. It's just not I'm complete. still mad about that game. That game I had so much hope for. As you should be mad, because the original Battlefront 2 I had on PlayStation 2 was absolutely amazing. Anyway, Yeah, my that- brothers and I, we spent hours on that game. Not the point. The point is that that is the worst example, if only because they liter- in order to get the full experience, you had to pay something like 130 bucks American, right? Uh, yeah. Which is just ridiculous at that point, I think. Um, and I'm not going to even talk about Battlefront 2, which is a whole different conversation. But uh, we'll gonna... I have thoughts on that one, I want to say. Yeah. Now, when it comes to, I actually do think that Mass Effect is a good series that has had the best and worst of DLC. Because, like I said, when DLC is really well, it tends to be my favorite part. A good example of that in Mass Effect 2, which is really the best uh, Mass Effect game, um, Layer of the Shadow Broker is one of my favorite parts of that entire game, and it's a DLC. Um, on the other hand, the especially the third game, I don't remember how what to what degree the second game did this, but they also sell you, like, guns for dlc just just guns which to me seemed really just especially at their prices were really scummy what made it what made me the most angry though even though i did it uh i bought the fucking like full all three games in a pack for the playstation 3 with like dlc and all that and i you know i was like okay this is a game you're like collector's edition that's why it's pricey and then i got home and it only has half the dlc oh. i still gotta buy the other half. That's not and, cool. Yeah, it, that is fucking aggravating. And I love, you heard me in my last couple episodes, I love Mass Effect. It's it's one of my favorite game series, period, as far as like an experience goes. But that, uh, and by the way, I don't blame Bioware for that at all. Bioware, it's, it's EA. This is yeah. why I like EA, EA is honestly a terrible company, which gets away with way more than they should. Well, EA is generally considered uh, to be one of like the three most egregious game companies, along with like Warner Brothers and Konami. So, uh, but anyway, yeah, like EA EA just destroys otherwise good games. Look what they did to Dead Space and Visceral. So, uh, anyway, but so that that for me is an example of a game series that does it well and does it bad. Yeah. So let's talk about something a little bit, you know, more fun before we get into the big offender. All Free right. LCs. Free LCs. Yeah. Not many games do them, but this is something that, again, has kind of come in with, all right, 
love going. I don't want to go back to this, but again, this is my prime example. Uh, the Total War series, especially the Warhammer series, they have put out pretty consistent free LCs. I mean, the first one, they had a sprinkling of lords to, you know, act as heroes in your campaign, losing your campaign. And then near the end of the game, they gave an entire faction away as free LC that they had to build from the ground up because there wasn't enough, there wasn't even uh, enough lore to base it off of. They had to create their own stuff. And it's something we aren't seeing a lot of now, and I want to see more games do, but you, simple we little actually, things. We do see a lot of it, just not in the places you're talking about, because FreeLC is part of the model of freemium games uh, in a lot, of, a lot of the times. Okay, I guess not in the original mobile model, but... Uh, a lot of games like, okay, a good example, and I will come back to this later, are things like uh, like Overwatch, which offers a ton of uh, free LC, but also has mechanisms to allow you to pay more. Now, the fact that Overwatch is still a like base-priced game is a whole different set of problems. But, yeah. Um, but, and then uh, do we count games that allow you to um, get their new content with just playing it? essentially does that count as free lc i don't know because to me free lc is the game developers going hey we were working on this and it's not enough to you know sell off its own thing here you go enjoy and a lot of times that's just maps which again maps character skins just little things you didn't have to pay for so i guess that counts all right that feels feels more like a microtransaction in-game grinding yeah, but that's that's why I asked because like let's take something like I used to play a lot of League of Legends. I I don't play it pretty much at all anymore, but technically everything uh or every hero, I should say, is free LC because you don't have to pay for it. You can use the currency you get in game from playing the game. Now, when I played the the problem was that the rate at which you accrued that in-game currency was fucking slow. Um but that's not the point, at least not the point right now. That's a whole other conversation to be had about that, which we'll have at some point. But the point is that those new characters, that was basically the entirety of what the company did, releasing new characters, were available to you at no pay cost. I mean, you could pay to get them earlier, but then we're getting into the nature of microtransactions, and we can talk about that in a bit. My point is that I would consider that quote-unquote free LC. Yeah, and I think it's something that more game companies should look into if they're capable of doing it because it builds a bond between you and your player base. And as weird as it sounds, a faceless organization building a bond with you, the player. Well, that's what I was talking about earlier. Like there's a certain trust between the person providing the the good or service and the person buying it. And yeah. Don't want to strain that trust too much. <laughs> well, I think it works as a great overall example we have here. Is this is like DLCs, free LCs, and microtransactions. It's we're going to get to it in a second, but it is an inherent part of gaming today that we kind of have to accept. How it is uh, is yeah. still up for debate. And I think if you do things like release quality DLCs and you give away free content, you are endearing yourself to your player base and they are more willing to, you know, purchase these expansions, these add-ons and do these things because you have shown that, hey, when we have the time, we will give you this stuff for free. Yeah. No, I, I can agree with that. Well, I think that is, is, go ahead. 
I was going to say, while there is certainly still a market for uh, powerful single player standalone experiences, things like Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice prove that. Uh, in general, the gaming landscape, yeah, as much as many problems as I have with the uh, various financial chicanery that the games industry engages in, I do agree that um, essentially extra payments, DLC, microtransactions, things like that, are an, an accepted like must be accepted part of uh, entering the gaming sphere, essentially. Yeah. And if it's okay with you, I want to start the discussion on microtransactions. Sorry. I, okay. First and foremost, before we even start about talking with microtransactions, we have to address one glaring fact that cannot be ignored. And that is that we as gamers have become overly entitled to what we think is owed to us. Uh I can elaborate yeah, if you don't yeah. quite yet agree with me. No, I I think that there is certainly a level of entitlement among... Okay, um, I think in general, in uh, yeah. the gaming sphere, not just for games, but there seems to be a a problem with entitlement in general. Sure. And we there's a bunch of things we can go into we may or may not have time for, but I think when Much I say that... that we shouldn't go into. <laughs> yeah, but I think when I say that, what I mean is... People now expect their games to be sold to them at the same prices they were paying 20 or 10, 15 years ago. They want all of the content for free. They want it to, you know, work perfectly, no glitches, no bugs. And they want it here and now. They don't want to wait. They don't want to pay patient. And I think okay. there's a disconnect. I, I want to counter and say, because I'm a... I'm a large proponent of the idea that uh, a vast majority of video game financial chicanery is has crossed the line and is bullshit. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. They are not innocent yeah, at all. But uh, but when I have spouted that to certain friends of mine, who again are my friends, but I'm saying that generally I see a lot of pushback from essentially people who will defend a lot of these practices you're talking about and, def and say things like. Uh, kind of what you're, I think, getting at, but doing it to defend things that I think shouldn't be defended. It's like, yeah, games are more, games are more complicated, but that's not the only factor. There are so many factors in in things like you know pricing, uh, and what what is available. So it's it's kind of it's a really difficult discussion. Yeah, and I guess we'll kick it off because, and if you want a better example or better you know put this better uh extra credit has a great little segment on why games shouldn't cost 60 dollars anymore okay but i'm going to counter that and say that uh jim sterling has three counterpoint videos on why a majority of the arguments extra credits made are bullshit don't get me wrong i love extra credits they're one of my favorite youtube channels and actually jim leads his videos by saying that he respects what they're doing and thinks what they're doing is out of uh good intentions but he like picks apart their points very well. well then good. I'm going to say go watch both because I don't believe either argument is whole. Yeah. And for but, the record, I, I want to say that I feel like most of what I have to say is said better by Jim Sterling. So yeah, I, that's why I'm telling you, go watch these two. They sat down, they wrote a script, they analyzed, and they're going to put it a lot better than we can. But to me, the crux of the argument comes down to games are expensive to produce. It's a gamble that they're going to sell, and companies are trying to find ways to make long-term revenue. Mm -hmm. 
And now, as an example, quality, the quality <laughs> is what's up for debate here. Yeah. Although, as a, a base example of like uh, the concept of being a gamble, uh, whether it's going to sell is for the most part bullshit because most of the games that supposedly cost ridiculous amounts are the ones that it is pretty much 100% known they're going to sell. Like, you know, when, when, uh, when they release a new Call of Duty, there's a reason why their sales numbers are fucking insane. Or if you release a Star Wars game, that shit's going to fucking sell regardless oh, of yeah. what. People no, are going to figure out a bad have later. no excuse. Yeah. Well, but I think is, as a whole, we have to accept that DLCs, microtracks, all stuff, game, certain game companies have to do it so they can afford to keep making these games. And we have to stop treating all DLC as bad. Okay, treating all DLC as bad. Cer- certainly, I agree with that. I-, I will say that, though, things like Senua's Sacrifice, which didn't have a publisher, was just released by the company and was successful because they had reasonable goals uh, re- and they released a like AAA quality game are proof that you don't that they don't the games don't need to be like super publicized super expensive things like that but that's that's a whole nother that's using a specific example to deal with a, a large which you could say it's the exception whatever i, I guess well, the the argument about games costing like a lot tends to be spouted by these companies that are the fucking huge companies right and like it does it ignores the fact that there are so many like little indie companies that release like really good games that get word of mouth and are like high quality most of that pre- most of that uh, expensiveness tends to come from publishing, which is extra credits themselves said like as if not more expensive than the game development itself. And things like Senua Sacrifice prove that you don't even fucking need a publisher. Yeah, but I think kind of what it comes down to, or at least the point that things kind of need to be discussed, is gamers have long proclaimed that video games are art, and I think we both agree that video games can be art. For the record, I'm personally of the opinion that the medium of interactive storytelling, a la video games or simulations or whatever you want to call them, has the most potential for artistic expression of any medium by the yeah. sheer fact that it is interactive. Does that mean that it'll be the the most successful someday? No, because there's a whole group of you know the populace who doesn't actually want to interact. You just want to sit back and let a story wash over them. But the ability to interact directly with the uh, the art in this case, I think, makes it inherently more powerful, or at least has more potential for power. I agree. And it kind of comes down to, and I think it's not necessarily fair to say, well, they made it for dirt cheap, so I should only pay, you know, bottom dollar for it, because this is art, and people deserve to be rewarded for what they do. Mm-hmm. I think it's kind of the counter-argument to games should be dirt cheap because they don't cost that much to produce. <laughs> no, I agree. That's why That's why I said earlier there's a the, – I'm going to – I'm sorry if I keep coming back to it. I'm a broken record. But yeah, it's that trust. Like I am trusting that I want to reward you and pay you a fair – like for the thing you're giving me. I just don't want to feel – you know, manipulated or taken advantage of. So yeah, I I do agree that in general, like the people who work on the games, and if I talk about like scumbags in the game industry, that's actually I think a small number. I mean, they're the people who are in power generally, as is the case in any industry. But you, you know, you don't want to punish the um, most of the people actually involved in said endeavor. And yeah, uh, paying a fair price for a product is what is supposed to be the case in like a free enterprise society. Yeah, so let's go after, I guess, technically last year's big perpetrator. 
Battlefront 2 and their microtransaction bullshit and why that didn't work. Uh, see, the funny well, thing you about talk that... about Shadow of War, because I know that one also was on your list, and that one kind of pissed me off too. I think they're both perfect. <laughs> well, okay, here's the thing about Battlefront 2. Battlefront 2, in my opinion, and that is all this is, my opinion, and I'm going to illustrate why, if you don't agree with me, that's perfectly fine. Uh, Battlefront 2 was not the worst case. It was just the case that broke the the seal, essentially. Because oh, yeah. the reason I why... <laughs> well, the reason why most people, from what I can tell, and I'm not a video games journalist. I don't spend every day looking at the new news and stuff. I have a set of like four or five uh, posts that I, I pay attention to. Uh, and there's no such thing as unbiased news, so you got to acknowledge uh-huh. your biases. So... So I'll say right up front that, uh, yeah, and generally I tend to agree with people like Jim Sterling, but I also really like people like Extra Credits. So that's kind of my biases. There you go. Point is, Battlefront 2 got broke the seal because its uh, loot crate system was uh, pay to win, essentially. So it was giving a objective advantage to those who paid more money by giving you like power-ups and whatnot. And there's a, a contingent of gamers who are fine with these kind of mechanics as long as they're only cosmetic. And I loathe that defense and argument, which is why mm. I, which is why I, uh, and I'll, I'll go into why, um, but that's why I feel like using Battlefront as the, I, we can certainly talk about Battlefront because like I said, it broke the seal, but uh, like you bring up Shadow of War. Yeah, I think Shadow of War was actually scummier because like while- oh yeah. While Battlefront 2 did the the pay to win loot crates, like Shadow of War used the death of one of its like high executives as an excuse to make a character that has homaged him and then try to charge you like eight bucks for him. Like that's I was more thinking the wall it puts down in the third act and go, now you can get through this. It may take you a while and it'll get boring and you'll never beat the game, or you can give us money. And you'll be able to get through this and enjoy the game. Well, it's also a case of the the shadow of uh, shadow of Mordor's nemesis system was the whole fucking reason to play it. And shadow yeah. of wars, like, all right, now we can just sell you orcs in a box, essentially, and it just kind of defeats yeah. the entire purpose. But I'm still more mad at Battlefront Two, and I think it was because I was a fan of the you know old school Battlefront. I got burned on Battlefront, you know, the remake. Mm-hmm. And then this one came around, and I got generally hyped, like, wow, they seem to have fixed all my major complaints. And then when this one just collapsed in on itself in every way, and I'm including the campaign, which was garbage, <laughs> it just was this pyre of rage. It took everything it did everything wrong it could. Man, the only reason I even know about the 501st because of the original Battlefront 2. Yes, that's right where I'm at. Like, goddamn. And... Okay, so I I, uh, I apologize if this isn't what you intended. I gotta go on a little bit of a tangent here because um I've so I got a friend of mine, a wretched actually, wretched uh who was writing a paper on why he thinks Overwatch does loot crates the best because we're gonna talk about microtransactions. Loot crates are the thing right now. Now yeah. I will I will preface by saying I actually have nothing against microtransactions as a whole. Like I said, nothing is inherently bad. Same thing goes for loot boxes, not inherently. Bad. There's ways to make them work. And I haven't played uh, Overwatch. I know you tried to get me into this. So I want to yeah. hear 
So I've been told that Overwatch, because I played Overwatch for like six months, so I'm not an expert or anything, but uh, I played it six months when it first came out, and I've been told that they fixed, quote unquote, and that and that's why, like Wretched told me that's why he was writing a paper why they do it best. Sure, whatever. I personally blame Overwatch for the prevalence of loot crates, even though they didn't invent it. I mean, CSGO was using loot crates for years, but the number of games released in the mainstream to have uh, extremely prevalent loot crate systems jumped up by something by a ridiculous percentage uh, once Overwatch was released. I believe the number was like between CSGO's release and Overwatch, something like 18 AAA games got uh, released with loot crate like systems. And then the year that Overwatch was released, it was like 22, like in one year versus like eight years. They were successful, I think is what you're saying. Yeah. So like, and you gotta and you gotta blame someone. <laughs> so uh, I blame Overwatch. And one person tried to tell me, "Well, it was inevitable. Someone was gonna uh, it was gonna happen eventually." It's like, okay, sure, I can accept that. That doesn't mean I'm not gonna blame the person who finally broke the dam. So and as we've established, there's good ways to do loot crates and bad ways. Now I don't know how uh, Overwatch does this. So why don't you explain how they do it? Nah, I I I'll get to that in a second. Uh, what I wanna do is i want to talk about that cosmetic thing for just a just a moment okay because um, i'm not opposed to cosmetic the uh, like microtransactions it okay, doesn't affect you, it looks cool i'm okay with it for the most part here's the point so i gotta preface this by saying have you read the um mechanics dynamics aesthetics paper of game design no never even heard of that Okay, for anyone who is interested, this is a, a paper written in like 2006 or something that would try to. It was one of the first attempts to formalize game design as like a um, a theory. Uh, Extra credits is a great video on the aesthetics portion of the uh, the paper, which is definitely worth watching. Um, but the paper is only like three or four pages long, so you know, just go read it. It's, it's pretty good stuff. Point is. The paper talks about how every game uh, uses mechanics to build dynamics and then uses dynamics to build an aesthetic. And an aesthetic is the thing that you as a player most viscerally experience with the game and is the reason why you actually like certain games. Because while there are uh, bits of every aesthetic in most games, most games will focus on two to four at most aesthetics. They will be the core aesthetics. And... To, to sum up, it's basically the reason why you can tell that Portal, even though it is in first person and as shooting, is not really a first person shooter because it delivers on different aesthetics than, uh, you know, Call of Duty does. Like they're very yeah. different games because that's what your subconscious is actually dealing with. Now, I've made the argument before that we should um, use this language because that, that's the whole point of uh, bringing up the MDA paper is that it gives me better language to convey what I'm trying to say, and language is important. So, as a really quick summation, the uh, nine aesthetics that Extra Credits goes over, which is the eight in the paper plus one, um, are, which basically any game uh, falls into. Uh, the first one is, like, expression, right? Well, actually, let me um, do MDA game design so I can have this framework in front of me so I know what I'm talking about. Okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I could do it, but I don't want to waste time like trying to remember. So anyway, first one, sensation. Game as sense pleasure. Anytime you go to a game primarily to feel something, like if you go to a game for the music, something like Guitar Hero, or if you go to the game just to 
for looking at it, right? Like um, a lot of those audio surf kind of games, which also sends pleasure because they're songs. So that's a core aesthetic. Uh, fantasy. Fantasy is when you go to a game to a game as make believe. So when you're playing like a war game like Call of Duty, you are engaging in the fantasy of being a soldier. Uh, it's you essentially go to the game to pretend to be something else. Uh, third one, um, kind of, but anyway, because escapism is more what all of this kind of conform to. This is fantasy is specifically about taking on a role that you can't do in your life for whatever reason. Fair enough. Uh, third is narrative game as drama where you're in it for the story. Essentially, you know, like the same reason you'd read a book. So uh, Final Fantasy is a perfect example where pretty much all those games are game as narrative. Uh, fourth is challenge game as obstacle course. So this is which doesn't mean difficulty. It's anytime you go to a game for the joy you get of completing arbitrary tasks. So like the original Mario games are definitely challenge games because you. Well, I think that's an inherent part of games. You need that balance between difficult and easy, so you get that reward, which is. Well, that's a topic for another time we'll go yeah, into. Yeah, but, but not every game is a challenge game is the point. No, there are ones that are purely narrative, like uh, well, any of the Telltale games. There's not yeah, so exactly. much challenges as you're enjoying the narrative. Or games can have challenge, but it doesn't mean that's the main reason you play them. Uh, Final Fantasy is a good example of that, because while there's definitely challenge in Final Fantasy, that's generally not why I'm playing a Final Fantasy game, for example. And you might be different, but the core aesthetic is not challenge, right? Challenge is... Just and a game, a good example of a game that does that is not difficult but is challenge that extra credits mentions is Kirby's Epic, Kirby's Epic Yarn, which you can't lose at, but is built entirely around overcoming arbitrary obstacles. Anyway, uh, skip ahead. Um, number five is Fellowship, game as social framework. So when you play the game in order to interact with other people so uh most mmos like world of warcraft are heavy on this uh, second life is literally pretty much nothing but um fellowship and one other one that i I'll get never to. got second life that always creeped me. i thought it was weird which is fine uh, just saying that that's what fellowship is about i play a lot yeah. of games for fellowship like i i play world of warcraft but i don't really give a shit about like raids or anything like that like getting loot i play because my friends play and i want to have play a game with them so i'm playing for fellowship six is discovery game is uncharted territory so anytime you go to a game just to find whatever you haven't seen before bethesda games are the most famous that deliver on this the idea mm. of having this huge world that you just go out and find new shit um, i'm going to climb that mountain over there why because i want to yeah or i see that cave there and even though i got a quest i don't know what's in that cave so i'll just go see what's in the cave that is discovery aesthetic like Which, you it's that. a good thing real time does not apply in any of bethesda's games otherwise the world would end 10 times over while you're chasing a butterfly or fighting super mutants yeah, yeah. uh just think next... about that for a second oh god <laughs> anyway next is the insert one uh, competition game as expression of dominance so this is anytime you go to a game for the joy you feel of beating another person as opposed to something like challenge where you're overcoming an arbitrary obstacle within the game that the game's constructed competition is literally expressing your dominance over another actual human uh beating them um so games like uh most first person shooters that have online multiplayer are developing or delivering on this mobas like league of legends are uh, definitely uh competition games i think any of the games that are you know uh esports 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, number eight is expression. Game as self-discovery. So this is the idea of if you go to a game for the joy you get out of essentially expressing yourself. So like if you spend, you know, an hour or two developing your character in a character creation screen, then you probably get enjoyment out of expression as self uh, as an aesthetic. Or if you, you know, will put on armor that looks cool even if it's not as good as others and a game that gives you more options to do that is a game that's helping deliver on expression as your uh, as an aesthetic. And the last one is uh, the the paper calls it submission, but extra credits calls it abnegation, which I like more. So abnegation is game as pastime, which is any time that you play a game to tune out essentially. So I would say things like uh, Fruit Ninja or um, uh, Binding of Isaac, where you just play and you don't have to think too much. You just want to just play. Minecraft. And, well, Minecraft actually delivers on almost every one, depending on what game you're in. That's, that's the point. Maybe that's um, why it's so popular, but yeah. <laughs> actually, actually, as far as formalized game design goes, that is generally the accepted reason why Minecraft is so popular, because it delivers on pretty much every aesthetic well. So anyway, now that I've given the language, the reason why I find the... Um, it's just cosmetic argument to be bullshit using this language is because it completely ignores what other people's aesthetic are out of the game. So let's use, for example, Overwatch because it's the best example right now. Overwatch is definitely a core competition game. You're playing to defeat the other team, right? Yeah, but, that's, but it's not the only core. I would say it also develop it also delivers highly on fellowship, fantasy, and even maybe expression because of the the character design. You could even argue sense pleasure because of the character designs. But so when I play Overwatch, when I did play Overwatch for like six months, I gave no fucks about winning. I did not care about winning, about beating other person because I don't care about competition as an aesthetic. There is no game that I enjoy. Where that I enjoy the competition of it. Even when I played League of Legends, I played it for fellowship and expression, Aaron and fantasy. Those are the main things I get out of it. So when we look at something like Battlefront Two, which got all its crap because the the um the loot boxes are pay to win, what you're really saying is I'm in this game for competition. I want to win, and this mechanic has given people who pay more the ability to win against me and thus damage my enjoyment because they're willing to pay more, right? That I is will contest that because while I think you are partially, I'll give you 75%, there's also the fact that how much fun is it, and this is why I want to play a lot of online shooters, of you're in the game for three minutes and then someone kills you. Sure, but like I said, that I think that is competition. That's what's happening. You are losing. So my, my point is that that's what you're saying, is that because the core aesthetic is competition, and your competition is essentially being damaged by them being able to pay more, that damages your enjoyment, right? But now you look at someone like me, who gives no fuck about competition, but cares a lot about expression and fantasy, right? Which means that if I had a game that had loot crates that sell both cosmetic and like pay-to-win things, I care more about the cosmetic ones because being able to change my character's skin is more important to me than winning because the expression I get from and the fantasy I get from making the character that I want to play as is far more important to me. So literally, cosmetic microtransactions 
piss me off more than winning uh, mechanic ones. But you might because... be the other one out there then. Well, sure. Like I said, um, it's about language and it's about understanding that there are people other than you, which is why yeah. I'm saying that if you don't agree that uh, that pay to win mechanics are worse than or are are better than cosmetic, that's fine. It just means that you are get something different out of the game than I do. But that's why when you say it's just cosmetic, it pisses me off because you are completely invalidating people like me who play the game for a different set of reasons than you. Essentially, you're saying, uh, you don't play the game like I do, so fuck you and your priorities. And that's why it pisses me off. I think that works as a great capstone discussion. But, I mean, we've talked about DLC, we've talked about FreeLC, microtransactions, we've talked about that it's an accepted part we have, to, it's part of the games now. So, to you, what is an acceptable form of microtransaction? Because for me, skins... That's where it's okay for me, because if I'm going to have to pay for microtransaction, I want something that doesn't necessarily affect the gameplay for me. I get where you're coming from, and that is a drive. You're tapping into something I want, but at the same time, whether you have a pig on your head or a helmet on your head, not affecting your overall gameplay. Except it is. It is gameplay is a but general. It's not That's... to the same extent. No, no. So, it... The point is, it is for me. That's the yeah, point. and I get that. I'm trying to find a way to express that. Well, to you me. no use use the MDA language. You're yeah. you're talking about challenge or or even uh maybe the the uh the ch you're talking about challenge and competition, and so those yeah. are the things that you don't want affected. Well, I don't want I want a balanced game, but I feel that cosmetics affects the challenge the least. So I ask you if you sure, have to have microtransactions game what is it that you're okay having uh, but, but the point of the point of going through the entire thing of taking how much time i did was to uh facilitate using the the proper language and so yeah cosmetics don't affect the challenge and if i don't give a shit about the challenge then it doesn't matter right so what well is it affecting the challenge and challenge based games the bigger part uh, yes, but it depends on what the game is based in, right? So, like something like Overwatch, which is, I'd say, primarily a competition and uh, fellowship and expression game. If I don't care about competition, I'm playing it for fellowship and expression. Then those then cosmetics aren't you playing it for the wrong reasons. No, I would say no because it's not only one core aesthetic. It delivers highly on multiple aesthetics, and whichever ones you choose, or the or not whichever ones you choose, but whichever ones appeal to you most, are the ones you're going to gravitate towards. So that's why I'm not into competition games that don't also deliver on expression. Which is why, like for instance, I'm not a or fantasy. Like for instance, I'm not. I don't. I play Overwatch, but I don't play Call of Duty because while essentially they serve similar functions, although you know, Overwatch has powers and stuff, the fantasy of playing as any of the characters in Overwatch is a lot more appealing than the fantasy of playing a soldier in a war. Okay. So, well, to drag you back to the original point, microtransactions. What type of microtransaction would you consider acceptable? For well, me, that's... it's cosmetics. For you, it's pay to win. You're saying you're okay with pay to no, win? No, 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 no. I'm saying that I'm saying that any microtransaction is acceptable under certain circumstances, but that writing off saying that cosmetic isn't or is acceptable while any pay to win isn't is invalidating people who value cosmetic more than who value expression and fantasy 
more than challenge and competition. So it and comes. I think we may have inadvertently hit the nail on the head of why microtransactions are difficult to implement because it's a given. It's part we have to accept of games. It's just kind of the way it is. But figuring out how to do them and not affect someone's gameplay is the real challenge. Yeah. So so here's so here's what I'd say because I play games largely for things like expression because skins are more important to me than if the other guy's bullets do more damage. I think that if you are uh, want to charge my crush sections for extra skins, that's fine. If you're in a freemium economy and uh, by the way, one of my problems with Overwatch again is paying for it and then having a freemium economy, but yeah, so, that's why I never got yeah. into it. There wasn't enough there to make me pay the full price, but yeah. go ahead. The point is I value the cosmetics. So if you want to charge me for them, that's fine as long as it's fair. So like uh, League of Legends, for example, I bought plenty of skins because the game was free to play and I felt like I'm getting a lot of enjoyment out of this game, so I might as well pay them to keep it going and I get something I want out of it, right? So it just depends on what level. That's why I don't like 99% of loot crate systems because uh, if you take the cosmetics, the things I want, right, and you hide them not only behind a paywall, but behind a randomization generator. So I can no longer just pay directly for the thing I want. I have to gamble for it, for the chance of getting it. Which, let's be honest, it is gambling. That is yeah, the big yeah. thing that's going on right now, is determining how much of gambling it is. It is gambling. There's no two ways about it. Yeah, yeah. But that's that's why uh, that's why I don't really care for that because I, I value cosmetics, right? Because that's more important to me that once you take away my ability to directly get the thing I want, now you have made it so I either have to pay a ridiculous amount of money for the thing I want or to buy a shitload of these gambling devices, uh, which makes it feel like I've wasted my, like it's over the value definitely, or I have to usually try to grind my way through it, hoping I get enough in-game currency to get these like randomization thing so I can get it there. But that in that grinding, I got to constantly be subjected to people who have the thing I want, thus psychologically manipulating me to more and more be likely to, to spend on the loot crate, which again, companies want to make money. Sure. But that is, I feel across the line, you have breached my trust at the very least, as long as you give me the ability to buy the thing I want, regardless of what it is directly with money, and then we as a community and, and a producer back and forth to find whatever the proper pricing point is, that's fine. So my answer to your question is any microtransaction and anything can be offered for microtransaction as long as it's acceptable, essentially, in, it's got an acceptable price point. And I would say as long as the initial release of the game is complete so that it's extra stuff. Right, which is why it, it, it cuts out things like Battlefront One, which was an incomplete game. <laughs> so. Yeah. So let's hear from you, the viewers, in your opinion. What is acceptable microtransaction? Don't tell us none, because as we've stated, it's a reality we have to accept, but we can accept what we will be given. I think that's my mantra on this one. We have to accept it. We don't have to accept what they give us, though. Yeah, also, you know, freemium games in general, like, you know, that's how they survive. And uh, I feel like, so that psychological manipulation I was talking about, um, there's always going to be a certain level of it in any game with microtransactions. That just exists, right? Now, in a freemium game, I feel like that is the, uh, for lack of a better term, the price you pay to play it. 
as opposed to paying like sixty dollars to buy the game, and then the the price you pay is to be subjected to uh, the manipulations to try to get you to buy these things. And I feel like that's actually pretty fair. It's once you charge me sixty dollars and then subject me to further um, pressure, that feels like you are taking advantage of me and you are trying to manipulate me. <laughs> so. All right. So we're running a bit long this week. We hope you don't mind. We know this is this is a complex topic. There was a lot to talk about, and I don't think we even we barely scratched the surface on this. Well, I I wanted to find an excuse at some point to go over the aesthetics of play because, like I said, it it gives you better language to describe what it is you want out of your video games and why it is you like them. And yeah. better language is always useful for communicating your ideas better. And I wanted an excuse to, you know, tell people they're being whiny little bitches and they need to accept that DLC and microtransactions are here to say, stay and there are better ways to influence the gaming industry than to take to Twitter and go, oh my god, this company is the epitome of evil. Although EA totally is. But... Oh no, not, EA's not off the hook. But there are bigger issues than your, you know, okay, your favorite fairness, game though. is charging you for DLC and you don't think you should be charged for it. In, in all fairness, though, that is definitely a balance point. Because, yes, on one hand, you, expecting to get stuff for free is just not right. But on the other hand, don't just accept whatever the game industries push on you. The, the other side, people who just buy the $150 Super Collector's Edition that just gives them a gun three days early, don't let them take advantage of you like that. There are so many people out there with addictive personalities whales the game industry calls them who will destroy their lives spending money on microtransactions and that's not acceptable either so while while you have to accept that we live in a free enterprise society and you got to pay for what you want you figure out where your line is and you fight against things that have crossed that line all right before this becomes a two-hour podcast let's move on to suggestions of the week uh i'm gonna go ahead and start this with my first one which is a fun little indie game, actually, I think you would like, called Expedition Viking. Well, it's got Viking in the name, so... It is a turn-based tactical RPG set in the Viking Age where you play a Thane on his first expedition to England. Okay. So the the fantasy sounds exciting already. Yeah, I've only played a little bit. I've just scratched the surface. But it seems very open-ended in what you can do. You can uh, be a trader, you can be a raider, you can set up an outpost there. There's so much, you know, options seemingly available to you. The RPG I'm going to beat this in your head until you probably hate hearing about it, but pretty much any time you talk about options in a game as a positive, what you are saying is you value the expression available in the game because it's the choices you get to make how you express yourself in the game through your choices that's the aesthetic you're talking about i'm gonna talk like a normal person um (laughs) the only real thing is it's an indie game so the polish is a bit missing sometimes like the graphics aren't you can kind of lose units in the uh, shuffle and uh sometimes the historical dialogue gets undercut by modern dialogue but for a $30 game, it's a lot of fun to play. I really like it. And, of course, to go hand-in-hand hand with that, I just started watching The Lost Kingdom on Netflix, which is, I guess, and I don't want to say this because I have an issue with this, it's Vikings 
for more historically minded people. <laughs> for the like, record, I like um... Vikings. I really do. I enjoy the hell out of Vikings, and I feel there's a sense of uh, superiority creeping into history that I don't like. See, unlike Ulrich here, um, I I watched season one of Vikings. You know what? There's a lot about it I like. A lot of the actors do a great job, and I nitpick the fuck out of that show like and i'm okay with nitpicking what i don't like is this growing thing of oh you like vikings you aren't a real historian <laughs> well no that's kind of my point i'm getting to is that i i personally can't watch any more vikings because of the historical inaccuracies i don't think that makes it a bad show it's it's actually a great show but being on the history channel and me personally being invested in it i was like i i can't do it i'm too distracted i'm not going to tell someone else that's a reason not to watch it but i i just can't do it like when i saw the temple of upsala and it not only was its architecture completely wrong but their method of doing the sacrifices during the important festival was wrong i i got i lost my shit so <laughs> oh no i have my thoughts and like lost kingdom uh again i've only a couple episodes into it and the one thing i've already got to say and as much as I like Vikings, the costuming has always infuriated me. Mm -hmm. And I understand why they do it, and I'm not going to talk about that because we're running long. Lost Kingdom at least gets the costumes right. The action's good. It's a really kind of cool show. I like it. It's based on a great book series. It's on Netflix. Give it a watch. Uh, Axel, what do you got for us? All right, well, first, I'm just going to capstone with something we already discussed a few times. But, yes, uh, Jimquisition and extra credits. So Jim Sterling has a show called Jimquisition where mostly he rants about whatever in the gaming industry pisses him off. He tends to be pretty well-informed, but he's also extremely hostile. So uh, He's made his fair share of enemies. Yeah, yeah. That's actually why I like him, because he's basically been blacklisted by a lot of the video game company because he does not give a fuck, and he will tear down a company for you know poor decisions. So mm -hmm. I, I feel like... like if you, if you feel, honest content exactly like whether he's right or not up to you decide but the chances of him being bought out by someone seem to be fucking minimal unless uh, i've missed something as for extra credits that's uh an actual like long-term video game designer writes it it's narrated by a uh, a designer or uh, an animator for pixar canada if i remember correctly and they have different artists do the animations for it they're the same guys who do extra history which we mentioned a few episodes back um but their extra credit series is all about video games video game design video game industry shit like that but they're That's a lot more yeah they're optimistic like jim is super pessimistic and his main job is to call out companies on their shit and explain why certain decisions and things are bad extra credits thing is to basically try to teach you like they've made a show that's really more supposed to be like an educational thing where they teach you like what certain game design things mean how certain decisions affect like consumers and the business as well as the experience so i wouldn't say they're two sides of the same coin they're actually very different things but since we talk about them i highly recommend both your next thing those are both my things i only had the two. Oh, okay well then my my last thing uh continuing my string of uh board games i want uh, have you heard of One Night Ultimate Werewolf? I've played Ultimate Werewolf. I have not heard of One Night Ultimate Werewolf. One Night is, Ultimate Werewolf is a much simplified version of Ultimate Werewolf. I think it's much simpler. <laughs> well, maybe you might have played One Night and not known it. Um, it could be. So One Night is my favorite deception game, period. So the uh, for those who don't know, well, actually, for any who wanted to see it played, um, the, the Game Grumps, uh, they had a table flip where they played it, and that's a good explanation of the rules right there. Plus, it's a pretty fun video. Um, anyway, 
But one night ultimate werewolf is very simple. Each player, you get a card passed to you face down. You look at it. You have a role, probably a townsperson, maybe a werewolf. Then everyone closes their eyes, and someone or a phone, if you have the app, starts telling certain people, depending on their role, to open their eyes and do something, like maybe move. Oh yeah, have, didn't we play this at my wedding? Were you there for that? Uh, I might have. I might have been the one who brought it. I don't remember. Oh, anyway. I got it because I saw. But go on. So. So people open their eyes one by one, or in the werewolf's case, two, they, so they can see each other. Point is, after all the people's roles are done, then everyone opens their eyes. And essentially, the idea is that during the night, crazy shit happened. Now, village knows that there's a werewolf or two in their midst, and you get 10 minutes locked down, 10 minutes to talk and try to figure out who everyone is. At the end of those 10 minutes, everyone points to someone who they vote to kill. Whoever gets the most votes is killed. If a werewolf dies, then the town wins. And if anyone other than a werewolf dies, the werewolves win. So it becomes, it's a deception game where the werewolves are trying to essentially work together to trick everyone else into killing a not werewolf. And because of the 10 minute time limit, it's a really good in rounds game. Like the, yeah, yeah you just keep on playing it. And it's, it's also really good if you've been drinking a bit, cause it's not too complicated. Just pass out the cards, do what the phone tells you, then talk. Mm-hmm. So it's a great party game. I agree. Yeah, it's my favorite deception game. It gets ridiculously fun. So that's my other recommendation. All right. Uh, Thank you again for listening. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe. Uh, Feel free to leave us a comment down below if there's something you'd like to hear in a future podcast. We are now on Twitter and Patreon. Links will be in the description below. As always, this has been Lord Commander Ulrich. And his shield brother, Axel Wright. Be sure to tune in next time and stay honorable.